The views and opinions expressed in this series are those of the speakers and do not reflect the views or positions of any entities they represent or partner with. What's trading? Getting a stalled economy moving in the right direction. What's trading? Getting a stalled economy moving again. There's no doubt that agriculture is a mainstay of South Africa's economy. Simply put, if there's no food, we don't eat, we don't survive. I'm joined by an eminent agricultural economist, one of the president's advisors, Wandile Sitlobo. Welcome to our series of conversations. Thanks for having me on and thanks for the kind introduction. I suppose we can look at many things that are affecting agriculture from a South African point of view. Broadly speaking, what is the temperature of the room? And you can think uh, the power challenges that we have, you can think the logistics issues that we have, you can think about where renewables are going. What is your temperature gauge of South Africa's agricultural sector? Yeah, I think you can look at it in two ways. Uh, because if you think about the sentiment to say, what are the confidence levels? How are the people feeling like that are in the sector? Right now, there's a bit of despondency. We actually measure that by what we call the agribusiness confidence index. The results of that for the second quarter of this year, they show that there's really subdued uh, sentiment. And it's been like that since about the last quarter of last year. And I think the key drivers are some of the things that you are alluding to. If you think about the load shedding, you think about municipalities that are not working, water infrastructure, rising crime in rural South Africa. Those are all of the things that are keeping folks in a bit of a jittery mode right now in South Africa. So let's unpack them one by one, if you will. Load shedding, what is that? Uh, how has that impacted the agricultural sector? If you think about the additional costs that one would imagine are associated. Yeah, I think uh, with that, Bongani, one way of appreciating that is really looking at the South African agricultural sector and saying, who's using much electricity in there and what exactly are we doing? If you think about our fruits and our vegetables, 100% of that is under irrigation. And you think about what we call field crops, your maize, soybeans, sugar, about a third of that is also under irrigation. So that's the one part where if you have interrupting uh, electricity supply, there's always pressures there. But I mean, you've seen uh, all over the news in South Africa, the poultry farmers, you think about the dairy farmers, those are some of the component of the people that are under pressure. Now, in value terms, though, you could make a point and say roughly two thirds of the income in South Africa's agriculture is related to electricity. So the interruptions that were happening because of load shedding, those are the people that are sitting in an uncomfortable position. Have many farmers, can farmers, never mind absorb these costs, can they come up with alternative power sources? I think they have tried to make some means because, I mean, as we speak today in South Africa, which is for 2023, we have well, the third best agricultural season. So the supplies are there, food security is intact, but all of this has come at a really heavy cost because then dealing with load shedding and thinking about how can you still progress with your production without shutting everything down? And then they have to spend a lot of money on diesel. But the government and ESCOM have also been very helpful. We have to give them credit on that. They came up with what we call the load curtailment, which means that ESCOM 
will reduce the 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 power will not load shed farmers but they have to reduce their consumption levels the department of agriculture have put up what they call the agro energy fund which actually deals with saying how can south africa's agriculture start greening uh, itself which means then the renewables is a big conversation there so all of those intervention costly but they've enabled us to to be able to see good production so as far as output is concerned not much of a headline there not much of a headline there even though it came at a heavy cost to those that have to bring it to the table so what are the long-term implications of this just almost re-engineering the way we think about farming and the way we do farming I think the long-term implication of this, I mean, at the end of the day, we'll still be dependent on ESCOM. But I do think that it, there is an opportunity now to add more of the renewable energy production within the South African agriculture. I mean, our minister, Minister Toko Tidiza, she talks about what she called greening the South African agricultural sector. For the future, that gets to be useful because you do trade with EU and the others that care about these things. So what are the possible solutions in greening our farming? Greening our farming means then that we have to come up with a ways of saying, how do we invest on farmers to be able to install more solar system, to put some of the biogas uh, uh, facilities in their farms? And I think that's what the Agro Energy Fund, which is at this point, it's still small for 2023, just over 2 billion rands. But I think there needs to be an annual allocation to that fund so that farmers can pull into that capital to cross-subsidize some of the infrastructure that they need to put for their renewable energy. So you're looking at funding principally, but are there any innovations you can think of in terms of the plans farmers are coming up with to mitigate against all of this? I think the plans that the farmers are coming up with for the near term, at least, is saying, listen, we need to actually reduce the energy consumption. Because in South Africa, I mean, farmers use a lot of energy for what? For the irrigation. That irrigation only happens in the evening. You pump your water around about five o'clock, you irrigate all to the evening. So you can load shed them for much of the day. So it's really thinking about saying, how do I survive with what I have right now? While at the same time, then I'm thinking about the long-term renewable installations. Those are the things that are on top of mind at the moment. How has all of this impacted, I'm thinking livestock farming, for example, the animals themselves and even available feed? I mean, it has had a, a, a huge impact um, on that, but especially in some of the areas where, which perhaps this will be crossing to the second theme, where you find that the road infrastructure is also bad. I mean, I'll give you an example. There's an area in the Eastern Cape called Ngecha. It's basically in a situation where the road infrastructure is not good. So if it has been raining, the dairy farmers used to make sure that they get the diesel supply to pump their generators. But in rainy weather conditions, the roads are a mess. You find that they can't get their diesel. Sometimes the load shedding is a, is, a, is a challenge. So that has a cost implication for them, which is why I was saying, even though the food supply is there, but it has been yeah. produced at a very uh, high cost by the farmers. So sustainability looking forward, we have to resolve the energy challenge. So food inflation should be a surprise to no one. Yeah, I mean, food inflation should be a surprise to no one at this point, but I would put uh, less focus on the uh, electricity issue because we have to remember that farmers themselves, they are price takers. 
they don't actually get to set the price. So it's what we see the commodities trading. And in fact, at least in South Africa this year around, I do think for the second half of 2023, food price inflation should start softening. Um, the data, if you look at what happens in May this year, it already started to signal to that change of turn where in months before that, we had seen food price inflation touching 14% in South Africa. And I think for the second half of 2023, EE will continue decelerating. If you're a large commercial operation, perhaps you can absorb all of these costs. But for the small scale farmers, for emerging farmers, these have been tough times. These have been tough times, but I think that agro-energy fund that I was talking about, it's set up in a way where uh, the ministry says, if you are a big farmer, they will subsidize 30% of your installation of your renewables. But of course, that is kept to a certain amount in rent terms. But then if you are a small farmer, they can cross-subsidize about 70% of that. But even still there, it's fixed to a certain term. So if the installation of the energy supply is expensive, that puts the cost limitation, which is why I think the Department of Agriculture and some of the other players in the finance space, they really need to be thinking about innovative financing way for the energy installation in agriculture. In terms of weather cycles, I mean, these have been some of the rainy years. Uh, are we in a sense lucky, if I may put it that, that we are dealing with this challenge at least when the rains are good? I mean, you've hit the nail on the head because imagine if we were dealing with weather conditions that are like this in years like 2015-16, which were the drought years. This time around, we are dealing with this in a period where we've had about four consecutive years of heavy rainfall. So this has been really helpful to us on ensuring that at least with the power cuts, we still have some natural moisture to continue with our activity. So if in the coming El Nino years, the cycle of course changes, we better get our act together as far as power is concerned. That's my biggest worry, by the way. Now to say, given we irrigate all of our fruits, all of our vegetables. If then we hit the El Nino and our power supply and the renewables that we're all thinking about is not yet intact, then that, that's going to be the major concern. Because remember, think about it, in January 2023, we had one of the difficult periods of the episodes of load shedding. But somewhere around about February 2023, there were all of these good rainfall, which suddenly all of the farmers that were tweeting pictures of, of soybeans drying up were helped by the, the, the rainy season. Now, if we don't have um, the, the blessing of that good rain, then we'll have some big challenges. We're obviously also emerging out of the pandemic period. How hard did that hit us? The pandemic has been difficult, but I think for the agriculture and the food production in South Africa, one of the things that has been a blessing is the fact that this is a sector that was allowed to pretty much operate. It was viewed as essential, and that was helpful. And it actually shows even on the performance of the sector. You think about year 2020, the gross value added numbers in agriculture, it was growing about just over 14%. You think about 2021, the sector grew at 8.8%, 2022, 0.9%. So that shows that there was good performance. For farmers, though, specifically grain farmers in South Africa, they benefited. Because when you think about it, that period, you may remember that we were having all of these good yields because of heavy rains. 
But at the same time, if we were looking globally, commodity prices were high because of droughts in South America, higher demand in China, and later wars in Russia that pushed prices up. Now, if you're a South African farmer, you have higher harvest, large harvest, and the higher commodity prices. So that was really good for the grain guys. But if you were in other sectors like livestock or in fruits, you did experience some difficulties. The wine farmers also experienced some difficulties, at least during the lockdown periods. It was very hard, and I would say they haven't fully recovered even now. And if you think about it, um, this year, the Western Cape has experienced some difficult challenges. In June, heavy rains in the Western Cape um, that have disrupted infrastructure. And of course, in some of the other fields, there are still some bit of damages. So that province hasn't fully, fully recovered. It is also why when there were increases in minimum wage and the other things, you heard a lot of people from the Cape complaining. So the cost pressures are still a big issue in our wine industry. What has agriculture learned then from the pandemic period in terms of agility as a sector? I think what we learned uh, during the pandemic was the source of working together. Because what assisted South Africa's agriculture at that time is because you had Transnet on a speed dial, you had the ministry on a speed dial, you had all of the commodity organization on a speed dial. So we're all thinking to say, okay, if there is a stoppage here, we needed to do X, Y, Z. How do we resolve those problems? But I think as we come out of the pandemic, focusing on other problems and not really keeping that close cooperation as that will be a challenge. And I think we need to go back to putting that close cooperation in place to support any other growth agendas that, that are on the table. Because, of course, our logistics challenges are still a major headache for exporters. Logistics are still a major uh, headache for exporters. And I think Bongani do appreciate that is also the fact that South Africa, with all of its challenges, we are exporting about 51% of what we produce in value terms in agriculture. That is just few notches below $13 billion of agricultural products. These things are perishable. They have to go out to export markets within a certain period. And when we look forward, say, for the next seven years or so, we're expecting to see the produce in agriculture even increasing some by 50% of what we're producing in, 2030, in 2023. So the logistics are a part and parcel of, of this, uh, and they need to be very agile, which is why that interaction with Transnet is very important. You'd be forgiven. I mean, I'm listening to you in terms of the volumes that you speak of. You'd be forgiven for thinking from a perception point of view, agriculture is not treated as the sexiest of sectors in this economy. And yet its contribution is absolutely enormous. I think it is why you and I are having conversations like what we are having. Because you have to ask yourself, who's sitting in agriculture? How much information do South Africans really know about agriculture? And this is not to be reductive, but we have to think about it, that the mining industry, we know about its commerce, about its value chain and everything else. How much do we really know about agriculture, except some having a little bit of more familiar with the smallholder farming method and not maybe as deeply engaged with what on a commercial industrial farming looks like. But beyond the farming side, we also have to appreciate that there's a backward and forth, forward linkage in here, which involves services that are needed by agriculture, certain processing that is needed in agriculture, as well as the certain inputs that are needed in agriculture. That only it's all is a sophisticated and and very deep chain but to be reductive ag agriculture is essentially how we survive it is essentially what absolutely we eat. 
How much is this, therefore, a legacy issue in terms of our complicated history in South Africa? I think it's part and parcel of that. I mean, I can even make an example of myself in here in a sense that, I mean, it was only until really I got to university where you have a full understanding and presence into a commercial scale part. I come from a part of the Eastern Cape, which is the Transkei region. Much of what's there is a smallholder farming stuff that you see. So if you're growing up in an environment and then you're not really seeing the fortunes of the commercial uh, agricultural side, you may be hesitant on getting onto that. But I also think that the conversation that we need to be having beyond that is actually talking about the value that people can generate out of the agricultural sector. Once there's a clear understanding of that, we begin then to think about this as a serious business somewhere where people can have a future. Are we investing enough, even if I'm thinking of even uh, agricultural colleges and that kind of pipeline of emerging young farmers of the future, are we investing enough as far as that is concerned? Bongani, you're raising an important one because when you think about the agricultural colleges, I mean, really with the exception of the folks uh, at Elsenburg in the Western Cape, there isn't really much that is happening. I was just talking with one of, of, of my friends about this because we usually say the Eastern Cape, KZN and Limpopo are the growth frontiers of the agricultural sector. But if you think about it, the University of Transkei, it's only just now where they are actually starting to have an agribusiness center there. That's the UNITRA, which is now Walter Sisulu University. But they didn't really have an agricultural sector there. In the Eastern Cape, the only strong agricultural university that you had is Forte University in the former Sky region in Alice. That's far. It doesn't touch the areas in Bizana and the others. But I'm using Using that as an example, basically to say the agricultural colleges that were in Enlobo, in Free State and elsewhere, they are not in good shape and they are not there. And we need those to be incubation houses of the farmers that will come in to farm, but also for teaching people certain skills that are needed for agro-processing. Because not everyone will work in farming, but there are certain skills that you need in the value chain. And if you think then of, never mind just renewables, but other technologies that are coming as far as artificial intelligence perhaps or machine learning whichever you prefer as a term are there exciting developments on the horizon there now very exciting developments i mean agriculture is high tech i i know that in south africa it is in a dualistic mom you do see the smallholder farmers but if you go to a serious uh commercial farmer there's a lot of high tech um that is there which is why again your previous point about agri-colleges it's so important because there's a certain upskilling that is needed we make a point where we always say agriculture can absorb as many south africans as they can even with less skills but in essence there's a lot of upskilling um that is needed and technology brings a lot of promise but if you are a farmer then technology brings about two things rising productivity and efficiencies because this particular one Abangani, you have to think about it from 1994 you and i i think we had this conversation somewhere around about 2018 where we're saying the progress of south africa's agriculture 1994 to today you get on social media you hear people saying oh everything is falling down but on agricultural sector this sector has more than doubled in value terms from 1994 up until today. You ask the question then to say, what has contributed to that doubling in volume and value terms? Part of it is the productivity improvements caused by technology, mechanical, which is on the AI and the other things, but also biological. There's a lot of improvements that we've done there. So again, I ask you, why do we not 
sell agriculture to the South African public as a sexy sector. That's what we should be doing, selling it as a sexy sector, but also where people can actually have a, a, a future one. But I think that will end up leading us to some of the difficult conversations that we need to have as a country, which is around about the land and the other um, uh, needed uh, matters for entering the sector. Well, this is why I was asking you about the legacy issue in terms of our complicated history. How much does that complicate the way forward? in terms of who actually has access to land, who runs those big commercial farming operations. Yeah, I mean, it's an important because now if you and I, you go out there um, in your world of work, you start telling people to say, hey, get into the agricultural sector. They will pick up a call and say, Bonks, where do I start? I need to have uh, access to the land to get in there. But I do think that we need not to have the conversation like we had in 2017, December. You may remember the time the ANC goes into Nasrek. It emerges with this view that expropriation without compensation can be a possibility and later tamed um, into something that was better because expropriation was not a good path forward. But I do think that there's something we can do. As you and I speak uh, at this moment, the Department of Agriculture, in its books, they have something roughly like 4 million hectares of land, but the one that has been audited by the ARC is something about 2 million hectares of land. If you begin to take that land, which is in the agricultural land holding account of the department, and then you select a certain group of young people that have the skill, if they don't have a skill into the level that you want, you take them through incubation, those agricultural colleges, give them that land with title deeds or long-term tradable leases, then look back into the agriculture businesses and some of the big farmers that are there and say the progress of this agricultural sector of this country also needs you to participate. What can you do to impact scale on that? So in other words, you can bring people into the sector without destabilizing existing operations. Absolutely. And there's a lot that you can do with that much land. I mean, not all of it is crop farming. Some of it is livestock and some of it is crop farming. But consider this. The area that we plant in South Africa for all of our grains and oil seeds, it's roughly in the year of 2022-23 season. That's about 4.3 million hectares. If now you have about 2 million hectares, that's actually almost half of that. You can do a lot that you can actually gain in there. And then you take that and you put it in production in full way the value of this sector could increase in our estimates by 2031. We think that agriculture in South Africa is a, is a potential to actually improve by anywhere between 30 to 50% if it's done properly. Have we then gone for the easy solutions in terms of essentially robbing Peter to pay Paul? Yeah, because I mean, I think the conversation should be on this. It's not only about uh, taking from one person and passing it to another person. Yes, there's a, because you, you, I think if you're running a country, at least in my mind, I think you have two objectives in this sector. There is something to be said about restorative justice. And there's something also to be remembered about the economic growth. Because, I mean, in essence, in South Africa, it's stuck with three problems. It's the unemployment, it's poverty, and it's low growth. 
when you look into agriculture, you're not farming only to deal with the issues of poverty, but you're also asking yourself, how can this sector deal with inequality and how can it deal with unemployment and all of those things? Which then to your question of robbing Peter to pay poor, which means that we have to say, what do we have at hand? to expand the agricultural pie while at the same time still pursuing land reform in a sustainable way. A recent controversy then has been this issue around water licenses and transformation. What is your thought on that? I mean, the water licenses, uh, they came on drafted by the Department uh, of Water Affairs. I'm not sure if for the listeners that really haven't seen that, what they were basically saying was that, look, if you have a farm that is somewhere at 100 hectares or so, we need you to make sure that um, 25% of that is uh, is transformed. You have a BE partnership there. If it's about 500 hectares, uh, about 50% of that, and then more than 1,000, 75%, something like that in, in very rough um, a, a, a explanation of it. But the challenge with that, you have to first consider a few things and say, okay, but how are South African farming structure set up? The average farm in South Africa is about 2,000 hectares. It's quite large if you compare with India, China, and elsewhere. But you have to ask yourself, why are average farms in South Africa slightly bigger? That has a lot to do with the agroeconomic conditions. We are in a semi-arid country. In the, the Republic of South Africa, in totality, it's about 122 million hectares. But you can only farm with crops productively about... 20% of that. So the limitations, they are there. But then with what the water affairs are saying, um, as well as the quotas that they, they were putting in place, that you cannot be able to achieve it in an environment like South Africa. Just agronomically, it's it's not going to be able to do that. Large part of it, aside from the numbers and the sizes of farms, is that you have to also look at these farms to say how much income do they really make. These are uh, family farms that are in there. In the 42,000 farms, that South Africa, that in South Africa pay tax. About 60% of those, they have a gross annual income of less than 2 million rands. The farms that make over 22 million turnover are only just less than 3,000 farming units of the 42,000 that is paying tax. That's to say that majority of these farms are relatively smaller. So if you're saying they should cut and have all of the, the, the ownership structures that we're demanding, it's just, it's not going to be feasible to do it. So that, that policy proposal is dead in the water, so to speak. Yeah, it's not going to be implementable. We have to be thinking about to say, what should we be doing? What you should be doing is investing a lot on the water infrastructure. Let's talk about the role of local government in as a support uh, to agricultural services across the country, many farming communities obviously dealing with smaller municipalities where all sorts of things are going wrong. I mean, I'm glad that you're raising this because at the end of the day, yes, we talk and write things in Pretoria, but work happens on the ground. And the municipalities are the ones that should be doing a much more better work. I mean, we have examples, if you think about it, in 2021 um, in Lichtenberg, we had Clover saying, look, I can't get anything done here. I'm going to move operations um, to KZN. Before that, we had Astral saying, look, in Bumalanga, 
water is not there, electricity is not there, there are issues. And this is the reputative thing that you hear in the Eastern Cape, in KZN and elsewhere. The municipalities, for me, I do think that they need to be doing a reasonably better job. If anything, they actually undermine the economic policy and economic reconstruction that the presidency put in place. Most of the time, it is undermined by the inabilities of the municipalities to do their part. But it seems that we are watching this train wreck every year. We are hearing these stories. They're only getting worse, but change isn't coming. That's where the, the, the difficulty is at. And you have to ask yourself then to say, why are the municipalities performing that, that way? I mean, you see it on an auditor general year in, year out. Uh, very few municipalities are actually even able to manage their affairs in order. In agriculture, we have come up with a situation where we're saying, look, some of the agribusinesses are willing to sit down and come up with some partnerships uh, with some municipalities that we do operate so that to improve the efficiencies. Because as the agricultural sector, at the end of the day, for us to be able to have a thriving rural economy, we need the municipalities to be operational for water and for maintaining roads and a sense of security in the area. Because if you do have that stability, then you have more agribusinesses investing, you have jobs being created, you have farming sector that gets to thrive around that. Then there's the labor unrest issues. I'm thinking of Denny Mushrooms, for example, and mm. that disaster in terms of allegedly workers possibly being involved in an arson attack. And they simply said, thanks, but no thanks. And they're not, they're not continuing that operation. These are all of the frustrations that are there in, in, in society that we need to be doing, which is why, of course, I mean, uh, even if you think about the wages now in agriculture, yes, I know that a lot of the uh, organizations, they complain about those wage levels. And uh, it's clear why they, they complain about those wage levels, because if you look at their operating costs are fairly high. But if you had the municipalities maintaining roads and doing their part, then the businesses wouldn't be taking so much money out of their balance sheet to do other things. But those are some of the monies that will be covering the labor costs and making everyone feel um, are more valued in their operations. You see agriculture in South Africa essentially as still a country of two systems because of the disparities that exist. Your upcoming book, or it's out now, tell us why you make that case. I mean, I make that case and we draw that title from some of the academic work that was done in UCT. If you think back in 1976, there was a conference there in UCT, which was about labor. There's an economist, young economist at the time, Molly Lipchin, goes to UCT to present this paper where she says, look, South Africa's agriculture is a, is a country of two agricultures. And she describes the, they're talking about the issues of labor and the farming structures at the time. But if you look at South Africa today, we still have a large-scale white commercial farmers and a small-scale black farmers in, in there. And I mean, you look at the overall production of agriculture in South Africa to, today in 2023, black farmers are still producing something between 10 and 15% of their overall commercial output. Now, if you're thinking about building a stable country where the political economy of rural communities is stable, that's something that we need to change to say, how do we grow a certain class of commercial black farmers? But then there's 
needs not to be understood in what I see in the social structures in South Africa happening, whereby whenever you bring about the topic of transformation, people think you are talking about taking from a white farmer and giving to a black farmer. But you can actually transform by growing the agricultural pie, getting all of these lands that are underutilized and putting it together and doing land reform in a more innovative way so that we can stop having this country of two agricultures. But of course, it's not only the issue of land reform being slow. There's a number of corruption and inefficiencies in government and to an extent even within the private sector. These are all of the things that we need to be dealing with. Have we had an honest enough assessment about those inefficiencies, about corruption within the state apparatus in terms of the land reform programs and processes that are underway? I think on the land reform, we've had a a conversation, but I I wouldn't really know if we've gone deeper enough. I mean, many people like Tembeka Ngukai Tobi, you've read the book, um, uh, The Land Matters, and he talks there at great length about the corruption issues that needed to be sorted. And I mean, I have a privilege of advising Minister Tiza and the President on agricultural related matters. And I know that these are some of the questions that they're grappling with. In my book, I title it, as you see it on a cover written, the country of two agricultures. And I've put that title out intentionally so that people can sort of like look at this. The hope though is that they go beyond by just looking at the cover and getting mad about that and look at the solutions. How nervous are you that in an environment where we are looking for scapegoats, where people are looking to say, I wasn't responsible and they don't want to take accountability, that we're going to go the populist way and look for easy wins? That's always a great uh, danger because everyone wants to point fingers on saying um, who did uh, something badly and who didn't do stuff badly. And the quote, the hope now is that we can all look at a more solution oriented and know that we all have green passports. We have to get this country working at some point. Gaze into your crystal ball. Where is the agricultural sector 15, 20 years from now? I'm talking now with renewables, with tech coming in, with this transformation conversation that is so necessary. If you were to paint an ideal picture, what would it look like? I'm looking at a sector that is created in by 2031, a million jobs. This is a number that came up with one of my late great mentors, Mohammed Karan, he and others in 2012. They were writing chapter six of the NDP chaired by Minister uh, then uh, Trevor Manuel. They were saying, look, there's a million jobs that can come in agriculture. I think we would have realized that by that time. And of course, in terms of the value side, um, I had made previously conservative estimate. We were saying we could add anywhere between 10 and 15 percent. But after looking at the numbers um, uh, and, and looking again at the ability that we can, I still think we can push the value of the sector to somewhere between 30 and 50 percent improvement to where it's sitting by 2031. But all of this will need us addressing all of the challenges that we've discussed here and some of them that are highlighted in the country of two agricultures and trying to follow the framework. Looking at this issue more broadly, I mean, we're talking about a young and growing continent. Are there opportunities to synergize? If I look, for example, at uh, the Intercontinental Free Trade Agreement, are there opportunities to say, actually, we could turn this continent into a breadbasket? Bongani, I cannot overemphasize the importance of Africa 
in the South African perspective as part of the continent, of course. Because, I mean, I made the point earlier that we are exporting nearly about uh, $13 billion worth of agricultural produce. But you ask me, where is that going? About 40% of it to the African continent. But within the African continent, it's still in the Sadek region with the exception of Nigeria. Now you bring into conversation the African Continental Free Agreement, Free Trade Agreement. That then means that there's more opportunities in the East, there's more opportunities in the North. We need to be thinking about those. But there's also opportunities within the BRICS community. I know many people do not like this conversation of the BRICS conversation. But in the BRICS, China and India are some of the most important markets at which South Africa should actually be expanding exports. And you will appreciate this with the understanding that South Africa's agriculture is export-oriented. We are exporting half of what we produce. That means if we talk about growing the production, we also have to put the same energy on the exports or saying where in the world should we be sending these products to? So gosh, if we get power right, if we get transnet right, if we get labor unrest and security issues right, if we get municipalities working, this really could be a dynamic sector dynamic sector and young people will be bringing technologies that are needed to improve productivity lots of opportunities in the value chain and even for scholars to study and do something in the sector so it's really an important one from your lips to the president's ears and i hope he is listening as one of his advisors perhaps one of the takeaways from all our conversations is a hopeful future the idea that we need to get heads in the same room collaborate and map out a clear path to how we're going to get there, it can be done.